Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. It's one of those late fall days on the 21st of October 2020 where it's starting to rain and the weather's changing. Just my favorite kind of weather. Uh, I'm coming to you today because I have nothing better to do. Now, we've been talking about the molecular dynamics and biochemistry of aging as it relates to the immune system. That's the general discussion we've been having now for the last at least 10 lectures on this podcast and the last probably four or five video lectures on the other feed that I perform. So we know where we're at and we know where we're going. We've been talking about nicotinamide antidinucleotide. We've been talking about sirtuin, which is a deacetylase enzyme. There's multiple forms of it existing in different associated compartments in the eukaryotic cell, particularly the human cell. They, uh, sirtuins can be found in the nucleus, in the cytoplasm, and the mitochondria. Those are at least three locations, and they're amphibolic, which means they can move around. Sirtuins, you know, deacetylate proteins. Sometimes they deacetylate histones. And when that occurs, they change the structure, the physical structure of the chromatin so that it becomes less responsive to RNA polymerase II mediated transcription. However, there are genes that escape that heterochromatin condensation. And those specific genes then help regulate the cell's uh, mode of action subsequent to that deacetylation. In other words, it's no longer business as usual when deacetylation occurs. That's not to say that acetylation of histones means it's business as usual. It just means it's a rheostat and there's a control over the acetylome aspect of histones in chromatin. We also know there's a methylome and we also know that there's multiple other covalent modifications of both um, the nucleotide sequences associated with promoter regions and enhancer regions and termination sequences of genes, as well as splice sites. All of that is regulated by DNA methylation and DNA demethylation. Those are enzymes that carry out those processes. And of course, the control at higher level uh, organized architectonic. Same thing happens with acetylation caused by uh, acetyltransferase enzymes usually using acetyl-CoA as the co-substrate. Um, but of course, you have deacetylation, and that then brings us into what are called sirtuins. And sirtuins act as HDACs. Those are histone deacetylases, and that's what I was specifically referring to just a moment ago. So uh, that hopefully brings you all back into the inured aspect of what I'm doing, because that's the easy stuff. That's just a very general overview. Let's get into what I'm going to talk about today. Okay, so I'm going to give you the association of NAD, melatonin, and sirtuins via a couple of mechanisms, DNA damage repair and epigenetic chromatin remodeling. And that's all within the framework of the immunosenescence of the living system. That is the aging process as associated with the immune system. All of that is going to be evident 
when we just get through these discussions. All right, so first of all, I want to remind you, there was evidence that NAD was an important metabolite in eukaryotic biochemistry, not just because of bioenergetics. You know that when NAD, beta NAD is reduced, NADH, H plus, there's a proton, a second proton associated with it, but that becomes reoxidized in the electron transport chain and that's oxidative phosphorylation. We all know about that. So we know that NAD is intimately linked in what's known as redox of the cell, redox poise of the cell. And part of that is bioenergetics. That's just basic um, stonemason biochemistry, right? So, but it goes way beyond that. That's what I've been talking about the last several lectures. So it, it, the, the yeast system was where this was first worked out and then it moved into other model systems. Uh, biochemistry in things like the genetic organisms of the previous century, like Drosophila, and yeast of course was a big one too, weren't nearly um, as encumbered by well-described biochemical uh, pathways as were the genetic research paradigms. So the two didn't really come together until we got into mouse models. And then from mouse models, of course, we were making knockout mice where we would delete specific copies of certain genes, um, sometimes at the allele level. And then we looked at the modification of, say, metabolism or development or differentiation because we knocked out a gene. Those were the knockout uh, mouse studies that started really in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And that was all work done with recombination mechanisms that started with bacteria, particularly E. coli, way back in the 60s. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just explaining to you, boom, all, move it all the way up, right? So NAD metabolism, um, both biosynthesis and degradation, has been looked at for a really long time. <clears throat> we know that NAD supplies in the cell are replenished either by de novo synthesis from dietary tryptophan, that's an essential amino acid, of course, or via any number of salvage pathways. And I've gone through them. So there are multiple precursors we have to remember. You have nicotinamide riboside, you have nicotinamide mononucleotide, you have nicotinic acid. Those are three major players. I told you last time and previously to last time, one of the key enzymes involved in NAD metabolism is this enzyme called nicotinamide phosphoribosotransferase or NAMPT. Right. And so I also told you that um, NAD is linked to something called the cluster of differentiation 38. OK, now that's a membrane associated protein. I told you about that. I also told you that it was that NAD metabolism was linked to phosphoribosyl pyrophosphate because that's actually a, a in the catabolism of NAD after its utilization in the sirtuin mechanism, you make an acetyl ADP ribose. You remove the acetate and now you have ADP ribose. And we started to talk about ADP ribosylation as one of the mechanisms for DNA damage repair, right? And we went into the double-stranded breaks and the single-stranded breaks somewhat. Uh, not just these last several lectures, but way back when, when I talked about DNA repair mechanisms. So hopefully you're aware of the fact that the reason we're interested in this is because NAD and these sirtuins play a major role in many diseases of aging. They're not just linked to aging, but they become more frequent and more common in aging. What kind of diseases? Cardiovascular disease and cancer, two big killers, right? 
So it's been understood for a long time that if we can get a clearer handle on what sirtuin turnover and regulation and NAD turnover regulation are, uh, we might be able to get a handle on age-related disease, right? So that's kind of where we've been going. Now, remember that the human uh, cell does not have a chemic acid pathway. This is the pathway that essentially allows you to make aromatic amino acids. One of the aromatic amino acids, which is a, an essential, as I said, is L-tryptophan. The other one is, of course, L-phenylalanine. Now, tyrosine can be made from phenylalanine in the human, so it's not truly an essential. But those are the three major aromatic amino acids, of course, in cells, tryptophan, phenylalanine, and tyrosine. So keep in mind that tryptophan is the precursor to a very important endocrine hormone called serotonin. And you know how serotonin is associated with neuropsychiatric disease, that one in particular is major depressive disorder. We, and we also have been describing to you that serotonin is the precursor to a pineal, and not just the pineal gland makes it, but uh, at the endocrine level, the pineal gland makes a hormone that is a degradation product of serotonin, and that one is called melatonin, right? So keep in mind that tryptophan is the precursor to melatonin because, remember, I told you that NAD is also synthesized or can be synthesized from um, tryptophan, okay? So that's a really important feature that I want you to keep in mind here. We also told you that NAD can go through various reactions. And the NAD glycohydrolase, which will make uh, adenosyl um, diphosphate riboside and nicotinamide, um, it will also go through an ADP ribosyl cyclase, which will make cyclic ADPR. And this base exchange reaction, which is part of the DNA repair system, uh, which will make NAAD, right? And remember that that, that that nicotinamide acid adenine dinucleotide is, of course, going to be a direct precursor to nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, the NAD, the beta form, which is the common form of NAD in the cell. Okay, all right, so from a paper published in a journal called Cells in 2019, September, so a little over a year ago, uh, this was volume eight, page 1047 to start. This paper started ta talking about poly-ADP ribose. So poly-ADP ribose polymerase, or PARP, also known as ADP ribosyl transferase, that's the generic name, those are called ARTs, A-R-T's, there are a family of enzymes associated with DNA damage repair response. So the PARP superfamily catalyzes either mono-ADP ribose, known as MAR acronym, or poly-ADP ribose, at PAR, of course, to target proteins using nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, that's right, NAD+, beta NAD+, as a donor. The process is also termed Marilation, right? Marilation, because it's dealing with the, uh, talking about the ADP, ADP ribose, and when it's a mono ADP ribose, it's MAR. Okay, so you can talk about marilation or parilation. Okay, this is just covalent modification and association of this ADP ribose, either at the monomeric form or polymeric form. So, parilation or parilation 
is a reversible process and it, it covalently links the PAR, remember that's the poly ADP ribose, and it can be hydrolyzed to free PAR by a PAR, I just mentioned this enzyme to you, glycohydrolase. There's also a PAR hydrolase. So those two genes are called PARG and ARH3. You'll see these in the literature. Besides covalent pyrrolation of substrate proteins on classical amino acids like glutamic and aspartate and lysine, that covalent modification of pyrrolation, poly ADP ribosylation, also can occur on the amino acids and proteins, uh, including arginine, cysteine, and tyrosine. Okay? Besides covalently pyrrolating target proteins, the binding of proteins with poly adenosyl ribose in non-covalent matter has also been reported to participate in a variety of other biological processes. So not only the covalent modification, but also just having poly ADP ribose in the cell modifies biological systems. Okay? So poly ADP ribosylation is an essential post-translational modification catalyzed by the enzyme poly-ADP ribose polymerase, or PARP enzymes. So PARP1 is a well-characterized member of the PARP family, and it contributes to the development of various inflammatory and malignant disorders. That's right. It contributes to the development of various inflammatory and malignant disorders, including lung inflammatory disorders, cardiovascular disease, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, and the metabolic disease, diabetes type 2. So now you understand why in biomedicine well, we're very interested in it. Okay. All right, so what about PARP? What is it doing? So PARP1 protein is going to play an important role in the repair of single-stranded breaks in DNA. And it's mediated by what is known as the base excision repair, or BER, of SSB, single-stranded breaks. PARP1 inhibition allows the accumulation of, you might, of course, uh, logically assume, it's going to allow for the accumulation of single-stranded breaks. When are you going to get an accumulation of single-stranded breaks? In an aging or immunosenescent system. So PARP inhibitors disrupt base excision repair, and they will cause cell damage and death, especially in breast cancer-susceptible protein 1, that's BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutated cells, in which the homologous recombination repair pathway is, of course, defective. That's, that's the gene, and we talked about BRCA gene mutations, and we talked about homologous recombination within that um, paradigm. So PARP1 is effective as a single agent in BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutated ovarian and breast cancers. That is, it facilitates in the oncogenesis, right? That's why we have in oncology PARP inhibitors. If you inhibit the poly-ADP ribose polymerase 1, PARP1, you can cause the decrease or remission in certain cancers. Which ones? Breast cancer, ovarian cancer, to name a few. Okay. So there's a whole technology, pharmaceutical industry, behind PARP1 inhibition. 
as it relates to uh, the treatment of cancer at the pharmacological level, okay? So that, that means you get beneficial effects of PARP1 inhibitors in combination with other, other agents, cytotoxic agents, that target the single-stranded brakes. Uh, that especially has been used in triple negative breast cancers or TNBCs. So PARP1 inhibitors are definitely important in cancer chemotherapy, all right? And I want you to keep that in mind, and now you know why. Now let's go back and talk about NAD. NAD supplies in the body come from either de novo synthesis from tryptophan, or via salvage pathways, okay? So NAD is synthesized de novo from dietary tryptophan via a series of enzymatic reactions ultimately resulting in the production of nicotinic acid adenine dinucleotide, that's NAAD. That's converted to NAD by the enzyme known as NAD synthase. Now, however, in the heart, the vast majority of NAD is synthesized via salvage routes from nicotinamide, that's NAM, and nicotinamide riboside, that's NR, and from nicotinic acid. So NAM, NAM, and NR are converted, excuse me, are converted to nicotinamide mononucleotide, NMN, by nicotinamide phosphoribosotransferase. That's the enzyme that's just really important here. That's NAMP, N-A-M-P-T. And the other enzyme that's important here is nicotinamide riboside kinase, or NRK. NMN is then converted, okay, uh, to NAD by nicotinamide mononucleotide adenyltransferase. It's another really important enzyme. That's N-M-N-A-T. That occurs in the cytoplasm. There's also an NMNAT isoform 3 that you find in the mitochondria. So you've got one, you've got one in the cytoplasm, that's isoform 2. You've got another one in the mitochondria, that's isoform 3. Then you have another one in the nucleus, that's isoform 1. First one discovered, that's why it's number 1. So nicotinamide, uh, nicotinic acid is converted via a series of reactions into NAAD and finally into NAM. NAD is broken down by sterile alpha and tear motif containing protein. That's SARM-1, cluster of differentiation, CD38, poly-ADP, poly, uh, poly-ADP ribose polymerase 1, PARP-1, and all of the certs, right? Certs 1 through 7, right? Now, remember what I just told you about where some of that biosynthesis occurs of NAD from salvage pathways? Now you're going to learn that the certs are also co-localized. And I hinted that this at the beginning of the lecture. Certs 3, 4, and 5 are in the mitochondria. Cert 2 is in the cytoplasm. And cert 6 and 7 are found in the nucleus. Cert 1 is one of those enzymes. It is not only found both in cytoplasm and nucleus, but it has roles in both places, and they are unique. Okay? So sirtuins and NAD have a variety of roles in various normal physiological systems as well as pathophysiological systems and indeed in cardiac and vascular cells and they can affect cardiovascular function. For example, CERT3 acts to block opening of the mitochondrial 
permeability transition pore, that's the MPTP, to reduce cell swelling and cardiohypertrophy. Okay, so it's not just in cancer that these systems have been looked at. So let's go back, because this is a this is a discussion, of course, uh, that that is associated with uh, uh, aging, and we want to look at a disease of aging. Of course, cardiovascular disease, I told you, is is a major uh, disease associated morbidity uh, and mortality. I told you, the cardiovascular disease is one. The other one is cancer, of course, and then metabolic diseases like diabetes. And then all of the potential ramifications and presentations of those diseases, which we don't need to discuss here. I'm going to go way back now because we want to we want to reintroduce Alzheimer's disease. It's a paper that was published way back in the cobwebby year of 2011. I'm kidding, of course, because in authentic biochemistry, the thing that I do differently than most other podcasts, uh, certainly podcasts that are devoted to authentic science, not ones that are just news and garbage, is I go back into only the primary literature. I don't use textbooks. I'm not using anything that's been rewritten several times. Now, I will use review articles, and I'll admit that because they will help me become synoptic when I need to, when I have a huge amount, a, a plenum of information I have to be able to cover in a few minutes. And that's kind of the way I prepare for my first few minutes of every lecture, like I did today. Right? That's kind of like a mini review article. But I really use most in, intensely primary research scientific peer-reviewed articles from the primary research literature in published journals, right? Journals that I've contributed to myself. So I just want you to keep in mind that we're doing that. That's why you're learning all of this subterranean information so that I can build an architectonic and then we can actually and authentically talk intelligently about aging rather than making broad, gross generalizations about metabolites or cofactors or vitamins, which is what you would get from any other discussion of aging. And that can lead you down dark corridors that basically not only will make it sound simple and understandable and will try to explain aging uh, within a paragraph or two, um, but it will also totally misinform you of all of that. Because unless you know the details, you don't really understand aging, at least not authentically. And again, remember the name of the podcast, Authentic Biochemistry, because I'm an authentic biochemist. So all that hot air, just to tell you, we're going to be looking at this paper, again, published in 2011. It's in the International Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. And this was published, um, uh, the, the number for this is 741, okay. And I will put all this in the show notes. So Alzheimer's disease is a major age-associated neurodegenerative disease. And we know this, right? It's characterized by what? Okay, we better know this. Otherwise, we may be suffering from it at advanced age. Okay, characterized by progressive loss of cognitive function, a loss of general and specific memory as it progresses. And then at the molecular and cellular level, impaired synaptic function and a massive loss of brain cells, particularly neurons, because of neurodegeneration. Ultimately, Alzheimer's disease does result in premature death. Premature meaning that 
it's associated or linked with people dying in their 70s or 80s rather than living all the way into their uh, 90s. All the exact cause of, of Alzheimer's disease is still being argued. There are a couple of prevailing hypotheses. Of course, you've heard about amyloid beta proteins and you hear, heard about senile plaques. Those aren't actually what cause of the disease. They're basically a biomarker for it. But, they, but these plaques are associated with immunoinflammatory responses in the CNS where Alzheimer's disease tend to be associated with these uh, plaques, right? These polymerized um, A-beta plaques. You also have as another major association with Alzheimer's disease, neurofibrillary tangles. And those are about associated with another protein called the tau protein. So remember, you have the A-beta protein, you have the tau protein. It's still being considered as major paradigmatic biomarkers for AD. Okay. So the literature is replete of deposition of amyloid plaques, and it suggests that cell death is caused by that because it induces a mitochondrial dysfunction, so you lead directly into apoptosis, right? And that's, that, that's understood uh, as a corruption of the redox system, and so you can talk about oxidative stress, right? And the production of reactive oxygen species. So um, A-beta deposition is known to initiate a flavoenzyme dependent increase in hydrogen peroxide. And because of that, and a whole host of lipid peroxides and peroxy radicals, and that then increases in a chain reaction event, more free radical. Okay, and in particular, um, uh, hydroxyl anion and superoxide. So neural tissues of AD patients exhibit increased levels of end products of peroxidation. And what are those easily detectable? Melondialdehyde, 4-hydroxynoninal, and of course, just carbonyls in general. Although A-beta contributes directly or indirectly to uh, neuronal de degradation, its potential to actually cause AD is not really what we talk about anymore. It's not causing it, it's associated with it. Again, it's a biomarker. Okay. So I think that we've, we've discussed that at great length many times. Now, mitochondrial dysfunction plays really an important role in AD, in Alzheimer's disease. And the link am, among impaired mitochondrial function, tau phosphorylation, it's a tau protein, A-beta amyloidosis, um, which means making amyloid plaques or polymers, actually only really at the tetrameric level, um, is increasingly recognized, of course, as a major phenomenon in the pathophysiology. A-beta accumulation and neurofibrillary tangles are composed of the tau protein. Uh, the the latter is composed of the tau protein. They induce, uh, or they are believed to be associated with functional deficits of the respiratory chain, and that results in mitochondrial dysfunction, oxidative stress. And that's actually got a title that's called the A-beta cascade hypothesis of Alzheimer's disease. As it turns out, that particular pathophysiological paradigm has shown that women are slightly more vulnerable than men in uh, that response, in that A-beta toxicity. Um, not, not at a two-to-one level or something like that, but more at about like a one-to-1.3 1 level. Now, with all that background, the replacement of brain melatonin levels, see, I told you I was going to bring back melatonin, has been suggested as a way of arresting the progress of AD. 
by correcting circadian and sleep-wake disturbance, which has been well linked with disease. So sleeping dissociation, right, at the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the central nervous system is one of the foundry events associated with the presentation of early stages of Alzheimer's disease. So melatonin, right, a, a derivative of, of tryptophan, remember, and, and from serotonin more directly, right, is actually a very short-lived molecule. It has a half-life of only about 0.5 to 0.67 hours in the cell before it turns over. And it binds to what are known as high affinity melatonin receptors. And that gives it a much longer duration potentiation when it binds to the receptor. Okay. So you, so the idea is if you flood it with melatonin, would you get a, at least a potential therapeutic efficacy to treat one of those early presentations of um, AD and that is insomnia. And there are a lot of psychiatric disorders, as I said, associated with insomnia that could be prodromal to AD. And one of them is major depressive disorder and the other is bipolar affective disorder, right? Now there's a compound known as remeltione, and that was one of the first molecules that was synthesized to act as a mimetic or, and specifically an agonist to the receptors for authentic and frank melatonin. Now, why would you make a mimetic? Why would you make a drug? Why would the pharmaceutical companies do that? It's because you can make the drug by intelligent chemical design so that it can bind to a receptor and not be metabolized, for example. Or 